Welcome to How I Raised It, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It, produced by Foundersuite.com. Today I have George Arison of Shift.com coming to us from Palo Alto. How's it going, George? Good. How are you? Very good. Very good. Um, lockdown, shelter in place, treating you okay? You're hanging in there? Um, yeah, I've not left the house except for twice uh, since, since the start. Actually, we reported starting. Um, but we did have to go and get our kids uh, shots uh, because they um, – uh, they had their first flu shot before the lockdowns, and then the second one had to be done like 30 days later. So we debated, and actually there's a story in the Times today that people are not doing uh, shots on kids, which is really bad news, but no, we, we braved it. And so I sh- we show up at, the, we have two, two kids that are uh, seven months old right now, and so we show up at the clinic with like masks, a uh, plastic thing covering our face. Our kids are like laughing to death looking at us. But we survived, so that's our that's my crazy lockdown uh, experience so far. You got the shots, good, um, awesome. Well, let's just get to business. What is Shift.com? Shift is a way to buy and sell a car. Um, so if you um, have a car to sell, you go to Shift.com and um, submit your car information, and we give you a quote on that car. If you want and want us to buy that car from you, you just let us know, and we come and take it up from you. Why the money, and you never see it again. Um, and then on the, you know, kind of buying the car side, if you want to buy a car, you go to ship.com, find the car you want, and then you can either uh, buy the car right there uh, online and have it be shipped to you, or we do what most customers just to do, you can have the car be brought to you for a test drive. Um, so, you know, and deliver to your doorstep. Um, we built this obviously way before um, coronavirus, uh, and uh, but in some ways the business was built for an environment like this. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, my new kind of favorite term is COVID. Um, COVID uh, proof, <laughs> like uh-huh. our business is COVID proof. Uh, and so, yeah, we are you know, still in operation and, and, and helping people buy cars today if they want, want to. It's interesting how some businesses are oddly benefiting from this. The, I just did a podcast with a, an online tutoring business and she yep. said her business has shot up. They started a crowdfunding campaign like in February March COVID happens and their business shot up 800%. Like you couldn't time that any better, right? Yeah, so, yep, um, yep, yep, totally. It's, uh, I mean, we're not, we haven't shot up in that sense yet. And I think look, all car sales are down, except that everybody else's car sales are down like 80%, ours are down 30%. So, yeah. you know, like yesterday I was talking to somebody who's like, great job, you're only down 30%, right? Like it's, uh, uh, it's, it's still tough. And, and it was really bad in the beginning of March because I think when this first happened, people were really terrified and the idea of buying a large purchase was not at all like top of mind for anybody. Everyone was kind of like, I got to buy myself a lot of toilet paper uh, yeah. type of thing. Um, but I think as things have calmed down, people have been more willing to buy. I also think like we started to do some marketing to let people know that we actually open because mm-hmm. with so many car dealerships closed, people think like, Oh, I can't buy it all. Um, so that's been, that's been helpful. And then, you know, an interesting thing that we're starting to notice is a lot of people are buying their first car ever. We mm-hmm. have a bunch of people who are like city residents who never owned a vehicle, um, but are now like, I'm not getting to public transportation and Uber and Lyft mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. I need a vehicle. And so people are starting to buy because they like, expect that when things reopen up, I got to get from point A to point B and I'm going to have no way to do it. 
which is kind of a really important point because unfortunately, if you as data is coming out of New York, like public transport and subway were a huge spreader mm -hmm. uh, of the, of the virus, and so. I think we're going to see a huge drop in usage of public transportation and a huge increase in car ownership as a result of that. That's interesting. Are you seeing a lot of new sellers emerge? Like, hey, I, I've got to cut my costs. I'm selling this yeah. car to you. Yeah. It was really sad. I mean, I, it was like so sad that you almost wanted to cry when this would happen. Like right as the virus kind of hit, buyers kind of were much slower, right? For reasons we just spoke about. But we had crazy, crazy um, growth in a number of people trying to sell their vehicle. And you know our quotes uh, asked you know submissions from customers for like jumped almost like four x mm. um, in the very early days of COVID. Um, now that's kind of tapered off a little bit, but still much higher than normal. The problem is that um, it's very hard to buy cars right now. So we're actually being really careful with the offers that we make to customers because no one knows what pricing is going to be um, in the future. And so we buy the car, and and that's a very risky proposition if you can't predict a pricing. And so. Um, especially for the cars that are on the newer side, um, like 2019, 18, 17 models, actually not making offers at all right now mm. um, because we just don't feel comfortable with pricing those vehicles um, uh, today. Um, and so it's it's tough because we want to be able to um, acquire inventory from people and want to be able to help them if they need to sell a car. But it, and we are making some offers, but in a very limited way. Now, a lot of players in the market, like our analog company, Carvana, which is a public company, actually has stopped acquisitions completely. Hmm. Um, CarMax obviously is completely shut down in California, so they're not buying anything either. Um, and so it's it's a tough market right now to be able to sell a vehicle, um, much easier to buy a vehicle. I, I mean, at some point, you know, not to be um, unscrupulous about it, but at some point, if you could make a incredible lowball offer or buy inventory at incredible deals like yeah and the market starts to to of course yeah up. you could do that so we are we're trying to not do that and what we're actually offering customers instead is a consignment offer mm. um so we have a product that we call buyout with an upside uh, where we offer you a less amount of money uh, front out than we would normally prefer to pay you and then you, we ask you to take the risk with us um, and then mm. when the car sells, we'll give you some portion of the upside that we earn above that. So say, you know, in an ideal world, we pay you $15,000 for this car and sell it for, say, 17000 But we don't feel comfortable doing that today. And so we might offer you $11,000, uh, still aim to sell it for seventeen, but then we'd split that remainder $6,000 in between, between you and, you and us. Um, mm. And so that way, you get to kind of potentially earn more. Um, and, you know, we are able to kind of share risk together in terms of what the car can sell for once it sells. And so we're starting to do that a lot more. We, and we've, we've had consignment for a long time this way, but this particular product in, the, in this kind of bio with an upside went live in April, not really timed to COVID, but in this, in this environment, it's actually quite appealing, I think, to customers. Yeah, that's interesting. Very cool. And just a, another question too on the business. You're actually taking inventory of the cars? Yes. So do you have a, a warehouse or do you? Yeah, we have, we have many, many warehouses uh, across the state of California and in Oregon as well, where we keep cars. And we also recondition all the cars that we sell. Mm. Um, now reconditioning varies based on the car, like some cars that are newer, we'll recondition more. Cars that are older, we have a concept called a value vehicle. So these are cars that are over 80,000 miles. Obviously they're priced appropriately as well, but there we'll do less reconditioning because the person buying that kind of car might not care exactly on the kind of every cosmetic appearance piece of it. He's, he or she's just looking for a safe vehicle to drive. Um, and so we have two standards for reconditioning, core and value. 
but we recondition every car we sell. Interesting. What was the motivation for starting this? What were you doing before? What's the, the backstory? So I, I was at Google before Shift. Before that, I started a company called Taxi Magic, which invented the use of mobile devices for on-demand services in transportation. Uh, this is like way before Uber and Lyft. Um, I'm not a car guy at all. Like, I, if you ask me things about like, what's your favorite car? I'm like, I have no clue. And it's actually Tesla, but I don't actually know uh, why. Right? Like, I can't tell you all the kind of intimate details of cars that a lot of people can. Um, but, uh, but I, I um, really got excited about the opportunity to transform such a big market that had been not touched by digital um, in you know ever really. Yeah. So uh, when when the internet kind of came out and and things moved from you know newspapers and magazines to the internet, um, that's when Cars.com and Auto Trader developed and basically were our, or our listing sites for uh, for cars. The same way that before that you would list the cars in a book that the newspaper industry would publish or inside the newspapers. So that's like the level of digitalization that had happened in the states, which to me was crazy. Um, and so opportunity was really massive and. Uh, um, and I also like the fact that you could build a great company that was big and very successful without um, having to, um, you know, take a huge portion of the market, right? Like mm. CarMax, which is by far the biggest player here uh, in used, is 1% of the overall car market if you add up used and new cars together. And, you know, um, Carvana is even less. Now they're trading at a better price. And so they actually work more than CarMax right now, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but are much smaller than CarMax. And so you could, uh, you know, build a great massive public company with capturing 0.25% or 0.5% of the, of the market, which is not common for Silicon Valley companies. If you want to be a public company, you have to capture a really big portion of the market in software. And so that was really interesting to me as well. Now, I had no clue how difficult it was going to be because this industry is really complex. Operations is way harder than anything I ever thought would be. Um, you know, I would be like, oh, operations easy, technology is hard. No, man. <laughs> operations is really, really hard. Mm. Uh, and so I have a totally new appreciation for how complex operations are. And, and, and you know, all the people like, oh, my God, I can't believe United Airlines is an hour later on my flight. I'm like, the fact that they land 70% of their flights on time <laughs> like, is an incredible achievement, given how difficult operations are. And so um, I, um, uh, you know, have a totally new appreciation there. But that's kind of how this business gets done. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you think about you know, just doing a better marketplace, I guess, why, why decision to take on the inventory? Well, like we did, thing. we did. The very first models for shift were uh, kind of the models being in, in, in you know, um, on paper and in, in PowerPoints, yeah. where we would not take an inventory. But as you kind of do this business, you learn that you have no choice. Mm. Customers want to get rid of the car and they want money up front and they want it now. Yeah. Um, and, and then you, you need to do reconditioning to have a good experience and without, taking inventory that's very hard to do, um, ne you know, next to impossible to do. Because if you're going to put in the money to recondition a car, that means the customer's without a car for, you know, five or seven days, then like you let them drive the car while you're trying to sell it. Uh, that's a little bit weird mm -hmm. because you just put all this recon in, like, what are you doing? So yeah. it's just too complex. Um, and so having kind of control of the car is really, really critical for this to work. Mm. Got and, it. you know, I think also, when you think about successful marketplace businesses today, many of them do have to control the inventory um, in a, in, in some, to some extent. Now, obviously, like being Airbnb uh, is exciting and awesome, um, but there are very few businesses where that actually works. And even in the Airbnb model, people expect you to have 
much more of a full stack experience than VRBO, for example, where which is basically Airbnb is like a newer version of VRBO, right? Mm -hmm. Where they don't control the the, the the seller, the person renting coming out as much. And I just think that consumers expect more uniform experience. Um, and so we do believe there is a marketplace opportunity with Shift, uh, you know, medium term here, where letting dealers list with us. And what we've seen happen since um, COVID is we've had a lot of dealers reaching out to us being like, hey, can I use your technology to list with Shift um, and then sell with you? Because they are trying to figure out how to sell without yeah. a customer having to come to store. And, and we're the only ones that have this kind of local market logistics platform for delivering of a test drive. Uh, and so I think a lot of people are really interested in that now. And, you know, it's, it's sort of remarkable that, you know, all these dealers are not able to deliver a test drive today. Um, it's kind of crazy, but it's a huge need. Uh, so like CarMax has built out uh, an ability to sell online uh, and has, has, does have store pickup, but doesn't have the test drive brought to you. And I think that they're going to really suffer from not having that because any customers are going to be just pleading for the car to be brought to them, right? Sure. When behavior changes, it changes usually forever. And so I expect that, you know, mm. uh, people will be much doing much less grocery shopping in the store later than they are now. And especially in the next, you know, 18 months, even after we open up until there's a vaccine, you're going to try to minimize how much you come into contact with problems, right? And so yeah. um, I think there's a, you know, huge opportunity for the marketplace there. And we are thinking about that. Like, can we try to, uh, in some way, both help the industry and, and you know help build our business more by listing cars from third party um, third party uh, dealers uh, who would then be able to provide a certification and quality check that we need uh, mm -hmm. to, to have a really good, good product. Makes sense, yeah. And it seems like I can't think of the name right now, but the, I've I know I've seen other startups sort of try and attack like the dealer side of the market right and haven't hasn't there been a couple like big flame outs there or I... uh there have been a few startups trying to build products for dealerships there's a company called moto there's a company called autofy um mm -hmm. they are trying to kind of like help dealers in the digitalization path hey you can offer financing online i mean like you know you can't apply financing online in 90 percent of the dealerships in the country if not more mm -hmm. uh like let alone transact online like you can't even get a loan of uh, so to say, uh, yeah. or, or even your information submitted. Um, so the, the industry is is really far back, right? It's not like oh my god, your website is old. No, no, this is like we don't have we like we don't have functionality on a website that is kind of you know completely expected by a consumer. Sure. Yeah. And and some of it is not like people don't want to do this. It's it's, it's really hard. This is a very complex industry. A lot of players involved. Most dealers sell new cars and used cars. The process of selling a used car is much easier than a new car. New yeah. car, you're dealing with OEM, you're dealing with OEM incentives, you're dealing with OEM um, lending products, right? Like there's a ton of stuff there that is just really complicated. So again, operations is really hard. And so a lot of people come in and like, ah, oh, easy, I'm going to solve it with software. But then once you start quote unquote solving it, it becomes a lot more difficult than you think it is. And there's a reason yeah. why some of the stuff hasn't moved as fast as it has. And yeah. It's been a very humbling experience for me from that perspective. <laughs> um, well, if you can solve it, like you're saying, it's a big market. Let's talk about fundraising. Exactly. Um, I want to get to that. So how much have you guys raised and over how many rounds? Yeah, we raised over $225 million of equity and another $75 million of debt. Um, we've done series C and then A through D. So I, I guess, you know, five rounds if you consider seed one of the rounds. Now, the market's obviously moved a lot since then. Now, like what we would call, so when I did my first company, the first round was series A. Then, yeah. then, then I'm like, okay, 
uh, as the seed thing happened, like that, and it turns out that that should have been a series C, not a series A. Sure. And so then I, in, at Shift, I raised the series C um, on a convertible note. This was, you know, safes were just getting started back then, and 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 I, I felt this is for Taxi Magic. Also. You're talking about? No, or? no, this is this is for Shift. Like in oh. 2014, we raised a seed round um, gotcha. using a using a convertible note. But now, like when I talk to founders today, like yeah, I got the angel round, the pre-seed round, and the seed round. I'm like, oh my god, like. It's just kind of crazy, but uh, so yeah. it feels like people are uh, moving. Everyone's trying to be later, and 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 you know, but there's so much money in the beginning of the process, so they have to invent all these new rounds in the beginning. And so, <laughs> funds that you know claim to be seed, but I expect you to have you know two hundred million dollar ARR, and you're like, it's a two hundred thousand dollars ARR, and you're like, that's not a seed based company anymore. Right? What are you yeah. talking? Yeah, right. What tell talk about that that first round maybe? Um, actually, before we get there. With Taxi Magic, did you raise a lot of money for that, and did that have an, an exit? Well, I was not. I was not doing the raise as uh, our other co-founders were. I was, you know, young and didn't know what I was doing back then. Um, but we did raise capital, so we raised about a two and a half million dollar what we called Series A. Then we made that actually a five million dollar Series A. That should have been the seed round, and then we raised another ten million dollar Series B. Um, the B was really interesting, and we should talk about that. And then after I was no longer there, and then we raised another thirty million dollar Series C. Mm. Um, and then the company was bought by Verifone eventually. Um, you know, when I left Taxi Magic in 2010, uh, it was by far the number one player in the market. You know, 10, 20% of cars booked and uh, taxis booked in most large cities was done on Taxi Magic. You know, we were inside Apple ads, like in newspapers, et cetera, um, as, as a product that, that they were really pushing. And Uber was just getting started as a black car product and, and Lyft didn't exist. It was, Zimride as a way to get people to go from cities to colleges and back, mm. sharing a sharing a sharing a ride. Um, so we were really far ahead of everybody and doing you know really well when I when I left. And then we made a bunch of big mistakes. You know the the, the company did uh, obviously, which you know cost me many millions of dollars. Um, <laughs> we we never gave the drivers a phone to use as a product. Um, we were working through the dispatch systems mm. uh, inside the taxi fleets, and and that was a big error. Uh, and then secondly, we were very much in the kind of SaaS mode, like someone had to pay. So we really wanted the, the taxi fee to pay and we really wanted the consumer to pay for using our service, not just for the, for the booking experience, et cetera. And so I, um, and, and, you know, I felt like it was a mistake, but we were very much in that boat as a business. We wanted to, to have revenue. And of course, like what we should have done is focused on growing our user base, forget, mm. about, uh, forget about revenue for a little while. And then once you captured enough user base, then you should have gone, gone to privacy. So that would have been a much better approach. Mm-hmm. But you know, in enterprise, the view always is, okay, if you don't charge somebody something now, um, that's bad. That was always the view historically. And obviously, freemium model has spread into enterprise as well. Yeah. And so now you see a lot more like, use me for free, and then you start paying. So that was a, a, you know, an error on, on our part over there, which kind of basically allowed Lyft and Uber to, to exist. Um, but there at Taxi Magic, we... We did have a really horrifying experience with capital um, once. Um, so when we were um, raising our, you know, what, what Series B, um, yeah. basically, um, that that round was led by a company named uh, Concur. Now it's part of SAP, um, and uh, we had just signed a deal with Lehman Brothers, where Lehman Brothers was guaranteeing us a half a million in revenue um, uh, a year to help manage their black car business uh-huh. in New York. Yeah. Uh, through our software, 
So same as kind of booking a taxi, but like book a black car to come to you because in New York, you couldn't book a taxi to come to you. Um, and like, that was an amazing thing, right? Because like half a million for an early stage company like that, great revenue, but also great proof point that this big bank is using us. Now we can go and pitch 10 other banks to do yeah. the same thing. Um, and that contract was signed literally like a week or two before Beeman Brothers died. Uh, or bankruptcy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and of course, this term sheet was offered on the assumption that the Beamer Brothers contract was going through. Mm. Uh, and so then they pulled the term sheet as well because, you know, stocks were collapsing, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we, when we only had like a couple months of runway left now, fortunately, we had a co-founder there who was, you know, very successful previously. So he kind of bridged us until we were able to raise capital in, in January um, from the same, same lead investor, strategic, except at a way less um, good uh, valuation <laughs> yeah. um, and and so um uh, so that was a tough tough uh, experience um for us uh, uh obviously and so my learning from that is you know as soon as you get a term sheet you got to push super fast to raise money um you know as quickly as possible uh, i mean close the close the close the docs and so i'm my yeah. hit me usually because i'm like all right term sheet sign like let's turn legal docs around tomorrow and like yeah. the mini feed that comes in return feedback back within a day and so they always think i'm crazy but i had this like kind of mental block on this point scar because tissue through yeah. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no that makes sense interesting cool that's that's i'm sure that story that you just told played out in in a hundred other variations with other startups during that time you know it's like well, but yeah, back then, and it's happening now too, right? Yeah. Like I've talked to a lot of founders, and I think it's really interesting where some VC funds have been very good and have said, you know what, if we have a signed agreement or the term sheet, we're going to fulfill it, we're going to meet it regardless. Um, or if, you know, we have a handshake, we might still do it as well. And others have pulled, um, pulled capital, and, and, you know, some founders have been very public about that, um, told these really horrible stories. And, you know, I, I, I really do respect the VCs who've just said, you know, we have a deal, we have a deal, and we don't back out on term sheet. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, it's not binding, but we still, as a, in a moral sense, um, do keep our term sheet kind of going thing. Um, because, yes, I totally understandable, right? Like, I mean, I know um, of, a, of a case somebody told me about, I don't know the name of the company, but, like, literally the legal documents were done, uh, and the wire was supposed to happen the next day, and that day happened to be the day the stock market fell you know, the most, like something like 80%. Yeah. So the, the investor did not, did not wire. Yeah. Now, I mean, like, that's just horrible, right? Like, come on. And like, once the deal is done, you got to do it. And so uh, it's, I'm sure a lot of companies have had a really hard time with that. And it's really tough. So I can understand that just to play devil's advocate for the, for the VC, if the economics of the company and the outlook has now changed, I, I can see why they'd want to pretend, perhaps renegotiate the deal. <laughs> no, I, I, I get that. But I mean, like, look, um, it, it, there is a set of customs to the to this yeah. business, right? Yeah. In terms of relationships that are not legally written anywhere, right. but expectations, right? Like, it's kind of like, you know, founders stay to the bitter end uh, yeah. and don't leave during hard times. And that's sure. not because the $150,000 you're making a, a, a year is, is worth kind of, killing yourself to the bitter end, right? Because you have a moral obligation to your shareholders and your employees and and, and so forth. And so uh, I think everyone has obligations here that go both sides. And like, look, if a company was like, you know, did a, did a pitch and um, was in discussions, but didn't get a term sheet, uh, totally understandable that, that that deal does not get done. 
but it is a term sheet sign, a term sheet sign, right? Like, and I mean, I, I remember one of my um, investors in my series, because right? I was terrified that, you know, something would happen, the term sheet won't get, won't get moved to, to conclusion. And I remember one of my investors telling me she, um, that uh, uh, the message was, look, in my time that I've been a VC for over 10 years at this point, I mean, this is a long time ago now, um, we as a f- firm have only pulled one term sheet in the entire time. Mm. And that was because the founder lied to us. He had changed his name and uh, had oh, a wow. criminal record and had been in jail under a different name. And then when we discovered, we decided to pull the term sheet. And even yeah. then, it was like a hard decision to do that. And so I think that's a really important kind of code uh, in terms of how VCs behave. And then so simply because there's an economic upheaval, you know, you expect them to behave the normal way. Because guess what? Everybody's your friend when times are good. The really good investors are your friends when times are bad. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a really important kind of, you, you, you get to see who's, who's your true friend and who's not. So, so. Let's talk about, uh, we're not going to go into every round that you guys have raised, but maybe let's do a little bit on the seed round because I'm looking at, again, if PitchBook is accurate, a pretty interesting seed round with about 45 like angels. and I think it was like 80. Okay. Uh, I think it's like it's like eighty angels or sixty to eighty angels. Yeah, I mean, look, we um, we uh, you know, I don't really know much about fundraising, and I think now I'm pretty good at it, and, and I'm good at selling our story, but I know I had to do it. And um, you know, Joel Washington, who was my co-founder, had been a VC uh, as an associate at a at a fund, and so he had a little bit of a better sense. And so he's like, look, we should just go out and raise a seed round. I'm like, okay, well, let's go raise a seed round. So we just started talking to people and. One of our kind of first things in our mind was, okay, how do you, um, like, how do you prove that people should back you is, okay, go, let's go get backing from everybody that knows us really well, right? And so we're like, okay, every job we've ever held, we want to get at least one person from that job to write a check, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that's like our friend or our business partner or whatever. And so we went out and like in every job we ever had, we tried to find one person who could write a check and, and do it. And we didn't really care how big the check was necessarily, like, it kind of doesn't matter. Then we're like, okay, of the people we know, who are people who can be value add as we build out as a business? Yeah. Like who are strong product managers, who are strong BD people, et cetera. So let's go to them and raise money from them. So we kind of, you know, that was like early money that we raised, you know, the first, you know, 900K included in that was one large check from a company called Amtrust, which is a, an insurance company um, that was in the business of providing warranty products to auto insurance companies and uh, auto companies. And so, there was an opportunity there as well. Um, mm-hmm. So we kind of raised, you know, that first check into that seed round of like $900,000 uh, from a bunch of different people. And then it kind of ballooned from there, right? Like super lucky that people were willing to kind of trust us in this very early days when we had like, I think, you know, experimentally sold five cars just to like kind of see what it's like to sell a car on mm-hmm. Craigslist, <laughs> but didn't really have any like, no product, nothing. Um, and, um, and so we, um, we, uh, you know, uh, and then we just continued fundraising. And because what happens is people introduce you to other people and people hear about it around and come to you and whatever. And so we just continued raising and we end up raising like almost 4 million bucks um, in that seed round, which was, which was really awesome. Now, yes, times were good and um, team was really strong because after we raised our first capital, then we added a couple of our founders to the team that were very strong founders. And so it kind of just ballooned from there and it was a really good, good round. Now we did something unconventional we didn't put a cap um on the note and and mm. so uh, it was like an un- uncapped with a steep discount i don't know if i'd do that again yeah. um you know that way because i actually think uh um you know being overvalued is a problem as well 
that people don't fully appreciate. And so, um, you know, I would probably do that a little differently today. Um, but, but that was kind of the approach that we took. Interesting. You mentioned before the call kind of fundraising as a process of discovery. Um, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. What would you mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of people have this idea, right? And I talked to a lot of young founders because I was, by the way, very lucky with kind of a lot of old, you know, experienced founders helping me figure out what to do. And I feel like it's important for me to be doing the same thing now, of course, for folks. And so and like, okay, I'm going to find this investor and convince them that um, they should invest in my business. And I'm like, there's no such thing as like convince them that they're going to invest in your business. Most VCs in particular, like series A, series B VCs, have set set of theses that they believe in, right? Like I believe in investing in these types of companies. Indeed, oftentimes the funds have theses, like okay, I'm a fund focused on consumer or a fund focused on SaaS, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and it's not that they fought necessarily about the fact that this particular vertical is the one I want to invest in, but this is a thesis I have, and I'm going to look at many verticals to see where that thesis fits in. And so I think what fundraising is for a Series A company is, going and talking to a lot of VCs and finding whose thesis align with your thesis mm-hmm. and then who finds your vertical interesting in the thesis that they're working in. And so I think once you do that, and once you have that discovery, then you can have a conversation about, Hey, let me convince you why I'm the winner in this space, why we are the best team and why we are going to execute the best, why you should invest in us. But until you kind of find that match, I don't think it makes any sense. And so I'm a really big believer in talking to a broader range of people. Uh, than people normally would do. And, and there's a lot of benefits from even investors that you might not raise money from in terms of getting to know them and then getting to know you. Some of the best investors I've dealt with, you know, um, Josh Koppelman, um, Jeff Jordan, um, Jeff Lewis, that used to be at Founders Fund, is now at Petro Capital. These guys did not invest in Shift, and I kind of, you know, call some of them like the ones that got away. Uh-huh. But the feedback that they gave me during the process was a really useful feedback in how I managed the business at the time of the rest, right? Um, now, I think in all three of those cases, actually, the thesis is matched, right? There's a lot of reasons that, that they should have invested, and there's reasons why they shouldn't have invested. And some of the reasons that they gave us um, actually were, uh, you know, reasons that made our business complicated. For example, hey, this is going to be way more operational than you think. It was <laughs> one of the feedback points from from from, yeah. from Josh Koppelman, which we were like, oh, no, it's not going to be. Well, it turns out it was. And he was yeah. right. And I think his point was the operational level of this makes me a little bit nervous. Mm. Um, yes, we could get comfortable with Uber's level of operations, but what you're talking about here is a lot more. Uh, and, you know, I didn't fully appreciate that when we were getting going, and now, now I do today. And so I think there's a lot of benefits to getting to know really great investors, even if they don't invest in you, because you will learn a lot from them, both yeah. then and later. And so... Uh, and you might, they might tell you things that you might not pay attention to, but then over time, it becomes really, really critical. Now yeah. that, that changes, I think, over time, like as you, you know, get into the kind of pre-IPO rounds, the many obviously, but like more growth rounds, it's a different story there. But I'm still in the earliest stage. It's not a, it's, it's pretty limited universe of people that you would be raising from in a Series A, Series B, right? There's only so many funds and so many yeah. investors. And I think there's a value to getting to know as many of them as possible. Um, the other thing that I think is really critical here is, you know, a lot of people pay a ton of attention to the name of the fund. Or I really want to raise money from Sequoia, right? Or mm-hmm. whatever. Honestly, like, and I, I was just as small as that too. I had this like chip on my shoulder, like, oh, like, whatever. It, what really matters is who is the individual you're working with? Mm-hmm. And is that individual going to be with you through hard times and, and, and easy times, right? When things are great, everyone's with you. It's when things get really hard that, that you kind of, 
yeah. see who really matters and who's with you. And so like, we were really lucky with the Series A investors. We end up working with Emily Melton from um, what is now Threshold Ventures, used to be DFJ and Manish Patel from Highland Capital. So uh, these guys have gone- Say that again, who is that? Emily Melton from Threshold and Manish oh. Patel from Highland Capital. Okay. Um, and like, you know, we've had good times and we've had bad times. Um, and these guys have been with us through, you know, thick and thin um, and, and have been with us the most and in the best way when things have been hard. And I can't just express how, you know, valuable that is. And um, the many people we could have raised money from who would not have been like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just think like picking the right person is so, so critical um, and kind of over focusing on the name of the fund um, or the valuation you're getting is, is really not the right place to focus on. Like, Find the best partner you can find for your Series A, who, who you're going to really trust to make your company be successful and, and work with that person. Mm -hmm. Was that second name uh, Manish Patel? Or who was yeah, that second? Yeah, correct. Okay, Manish Patel. P-A-T-L. Awesome. Let's talk about, a little bit about um, down rounds. Uh, you mentioned before the call that you've been through a down round. We've never, believe it or not, in 150 episodes of this of this podcast talked about down rounds, which well, because no one is willing to well, no one's willing to admit that they've done a down round. Even uh -huh. some great companies have done down, down rounds. I mean, Postmates did a down round. Um, I, I believe uh, Redfin did a down round. Like totally normal to do down rounds. By the way, stock prices in public markets go up or down. Like stock prices aren't always the same. Like why is that wrong for private companies? And then yeah. secondly, we did live through like a crazy positive economic time for the last ten years. But capital was just kind of like flowing, you know, as if it was in water, and that's going to change. And the reality yeah. is that, you know, we are entering an environment now where a ton of companies are massively overvalued. Uh, I think, like, um, you know, flat is going to be the new up round, uh, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and sure. and then, you know, uh, it will be incredible. Look, it will be incredible if companies are able to do up rounds. Some companies will, no yeah. question, right? Like, you know, Stripe, whatever. But that's not most companies. Most companies are going to have a much harder time, I think, with with capital and 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 so forth. Yeah, and so we have we did do a down round of shift. Um, I've generally been very open to that. Um, Which yeah, one was it? We were, did you, uh, can C, you share? Series C. Series, Series C. C was a down. Okay. Yeah, uh, we uh, we were. Oh, no, I, I don't ever talk about valuations as numbers. I, I have a policy sure. not give numbers, whether they're good or bad. And so, but we had a very high price after the B. Um, there was a little bit of a. Um, kind of contraction in economy and um, contraction I mean, it didn't fall but like markets were really bad in uh, 2016 mm -hmm. 2017 for a while China had a big economic mess happen uh, if you remember and so um, following that plus we had a lot of issues with our performance we didn't quite do as much growth as we had expected this is kind of when we learned that operations is going to be so hard <laughs> um, and uh, and we had you know our, our price was one that we had to kind of grow into. Yeah. Um, and but that's okay. We just better raise enough money uh, to grow into it. And I think we, we had a high price, but we only raised 50 million bucks. Had we had that price and raised 100 million bucks, it might have been a different story. But mm. coming out of that, we had to raise around. And then, by the way, you know, we actually had a term sheet for a Series C that was more of a flattish up round. But then Donald Trump got elected, and that really uh, messed that term sheet up because it was a, a foreign-led term sheet um, from a mm. foreign investor who – um, was like, wow, like, I'm not sure I want to invest in a U.S. company anymore uh, mm. in light of, uh, of, of Donald Trump's election. And so anyway, so, so that was cool. And we went into, you know, 
a period where we have like six months of runway and we, we need to do whatever we took. And so we ended up having to do a down round. And uh, before that round came together, um, you know, our board did a lot of work to get the company, um, get the company to a, to a place where we could do a, a good down round. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and one other piece of advice that um, Simon Rothman at, at Greylock gave me around then, it's like, get your insiders to commit to a, to a price and get your insiders to commit to how much money they're going to invest mm. um, and try to put that on paper. And that was exactly also the advice that internally on the board, Emily Melton was pushing our board to do, right, in a very like enlightened way. Hey, we've got to do this uh, before, before George goes out to fundraise. And so we agreed to the down round you know, price as a, as a board internally before we went out. And we had a commitment for capital as well. Like we're going to do X millions of dollars from mm. the insiders if we can get a lead of, of Y or another investor of Y. And that really created a really positive leverage in terms of discussions with, with new investors because new investors don't like to do down rounds. Yeah. Um, mm. and, and here, because like the cap table cleanup had been done internally already, um, it was much easier for them because now they're not coming in trying to force something that people are unwilling to accept. Rather, it's like, okay, this is my set of terms based on the terms that you have already said you're willing to accept. Um, so that's like one kind of really critical thing is like, if you're going to have to do a flat or a down round, try to get your insiders to commit capital and try to get your insiders to commit, um, you know, uh, to set of terms yeah. uh, in terms of what they think is, is right. Uh, obviously, like it's a little bit of negotiation with yourself because now you're like admitting that the price has to be cheaper. But, you know, um, in, in this environment, I think that's okay. I was going to ask, knows. how did you, how did you know you needed to do a down round? I mean, and did you go out to the market and the market was telling you that, or you just sort of knew? Yeah, no, we, we were, because we had been in the market, we had this agreement for, for funding from somebody and then that was pulled and that was already like, you know, basically flattish type around, yeah. um, you know, so an environment where they didn't get done. We're coming back three months later into the market. Um, it was pretty clear that we would need to do a, a down round and, and, you know, and you kind of, I think it's hard to decide what the price is, but you kind of have to like figure it out. Um, yeah. So the other big thing that's really complicated in down rounds is um, kind of um, what's called anti-dilution, um, where basically um, existing investors have um, a preference, which gives them the right that they would get extra shares for their old investment um, in order to prevent them from being diluted too much. But obviously, the common shareholders, including all the employees, don't have that. And you know, anti-dilution is a very complicated thing. Um, if you talk to lawyers, I'll tell you, look, out of the down rounds I've done, you know, 50% of the time, anti-dilution is waived. Um, obviously, existing investors really don't like to do that because it really hurts them. But, um, but that's something that people should be aware of and try to negotiate with their existing investors on. Most likely, new investors will insist that anti-dilution be waived. Um, and so that's something to kind of be aware of as well, because mm. new investors will be very much pushing for the team to be protected, uh, which makes sense as well, right? Because they would want the team to be uh, in, a, in a good position. Um, another factor that, that oftentimes comes come into play, and, and this is one that VCs hate, but for example, it's public that Postmates had to, to do this, is like, do you change your liquidation preference stack um, mm. or not? And so in down runs, sometimes the old liquidation stack is changed and like, whereas Normally, liquidations that might be tied to a specific um, dollar amount invested. Um, sometimes in down runs, they'll say, okay, no, it's going to be tied to the number of shares that you have. So you might have 
you know, before you might have had $2 per share in liquidation, but now we are raising money at a dollar. And so your new liquidation preference for your old investments are only going to be a dollar as well. Um, that's much harder to, to, to do. Mm-hmm. But again, there's an example of Postmates public. You can look it up, uh, you know, in, in kind of stories from TechCrunch and, and information where they've done that. Uh, and again, that is mainly done to kind of keep the team um, aligned and keep the team in a place yeah. where they don't have a, a huge lick craft sitting on, on, top, on top of that. Um, and so those are the kinds of things you need to be thinking about as you get into a down round and try to get as much alignment among your existing shareholders on that mm-hmm. before you go out. Um, and, you know, uh, I think the teams usually really get nervous about dilution. Uh, my message on that is like, don't worry about that. Yes, it kind of sucks for people who were at your company and then left because there's nothing you can do with them. But mm. existing employees kind of go forward team, you can take care of the go forward team. And everyone's going to be very aligned that the go forward team should have a lot of ownership. Now, tough for the founder because the founder is not going to get any kind of big uptake in their ownership compared to what they had before. Mm-hmm. But quite frankly, most founder ownership is totally artificial, right? Like, is it really that the founder who started the business owns 50% and the first employee owns one? Like, mm-hmm. that makes no sense, right? Like, the, the order of magnitude difference there is way too big. Um, and so I was like, I, I didn't take any re-up in our, in our down round. And my view was like, look, my ownership is really artificial. Um, does it suck that it's going to be diluted? Of course it does. But that's just the reality of what has to happen to make this company be successful. And it's still own more than anybody else does, even in, uh, even after the, the dilution. And so, um, so, you know, my incentivization is still very much there. Um, and so, but I think you do need to really focus on taking care of your existing team as much as possible. This, this is good advice. If, if, you know, it's a good playbook here, getting your investors to commit to terms and amount they'll invest, asking if they'll waive, um, uh, and solution. clauses. And if they're not willing to do that, how can you help ease the burden on your employees or make, well, you could, you could do a, you could do a big pool, right? You could do a pool. Um, mm-hmm. you could agree to a big option pool that is awarded to people. Um, and you could have a formula that you say, okay, like I'm going to award people this equity based on X, Y, Z, and it could be pretty substantial. Um, and another thing that to do, like if your option price is really high mm. and the new price is going to be lower, that's another consideration to keep in mind. Like do you reissue options um, mm. for people um, that have them at a high price? We did. Um, and, you know, that's a big, that was a very big benefit that people got from that process where like they were sitting at a X price and then um, the lower price than that for the option. Um, by the way, like when you do a down round, your 401A valuation uh, or 409A valuation right. ends up being much cheaper because like inevitably that's a kind of a challenging situation. They, they're very comfortable with having a low uh, 409A. So um, there's a lot of opportunity there as well in terms of benefits that the team gets. Interesting. And just one more question on that, on the anti-dilution, you know, asking your investors to waive that. Do you need all your investors to agree to waive that or can it work normally, no, normally, yes. And I mean, look, the new investor is going to have some say in this as well, right? So even mm-hmm. if your existing investors don't agree, the new investor has some leverage in terms of what to agree and what to not agree to. Um, some investors have a really hard time in, 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 in investing. Like we have, didn't have to do this. So to be clear, like I've not lived through this, but I know that this happens, right? Um, where when investors have a, are not able to get their uh, companies to agree to, uh, or their funds to agree to invest in a yeah. in a down round scenario, uh, a new investor might come in and say, "Great, we will um, 
we will put a term, set of terms in here, um, which is pay for play. Where like, if you do not invest, um, you're gonna lose all your preferences, mm -hmm. um, uh, right? And, and so, and your shares are gonna become just common. And so that's a mechanism that new shareholders might use to force you know, older shareholders to kind of pony up more money and, and invest. It's yeah. a tough one, it's pretty aggressive to do. Um, it really hurts seed investors in particular because they don't, oftentimes don't have the ability to invest more. But that's, an, that's a leverage point that the new investors can use as well. That's a big reason why it's good to get alignment on, hey, all the old investors are going to invest X, Y, Z before you go out. It's, and it's helpful from that perspective. That's interesting. Any tips for messaging a down round to, to I guess, employees maybe? you know? Look, um, we have had a philosophy since Series uh, A to not tell people what the price is. We did tell people what the price was on the Series A, and then I realized that it's a mistake. Mm. Uh, as kind of time went by, and then I said, okay, we're never going to tell people what the price what, why is, is going to be. Um, because these valuations are completely artificial. Uh -huh. So valuation is for Series A, Series B, Series C companies. I'm not talking about like Series E company that's almost compared to a public company. There's a comp, right? I'm talking about these early stage businesses with yeah. very little metrics. The way valuations work isn't, hey, I convinced the investor that my valuation should be 50 million bucks, and they agreed, right? It's like, I convinced my investor to invest $10 million, and an investor had a requirement that they own 20% of the company that led to a valuation of X, right? Sure. That's how these valuations come up. Yeah. And so it's totally artificial. I think it's completely unhelpful for people to think about, oh, I, I'm worth X, Y, Z money because I raised money at this valuation. Yeah. And, and so I, I just think it's not helpful. And so we just don't talk, don't yeah. talk about it. Okay. And, uh, um, and so um, we, uh, we, but we, were, we have a very transparent culture. And so we did tell people we had a down round. Mm -hmm. We did tell people that uh, it was challenging for these reasons. And, and then we were very direct in terms of what we were doing to address their ownership. And we were really, really big. And like, we tried to make up, uh, basically, um, we tried to get roughly 90% of our employees to own more of the company after the down round than they did before the down round. Um, that was kind of the objective that we set. We couldn't do it for everybody. Yeah. Because we had some very early employees that just owned so much that you couldn't make up for the whole thing. It was just not possible. Yeah. Um, and so there, we tried to do as much as we could, but it couldn't go all the way. But for anybody that we you know was, you know, after that kind of very first initial batch of kind of post-founder hires, right, we tried to make up for them so that they would own more of the business after the down round than before. Um, and our board and our investors were very supportive of that. Um, and so the messaging was, look, it's a down round, but actually you own more of it. Mm. Now, valuations are totally artificial anyway, so it doesn't matter, mm. but your ownership is better. And by the way, you can exercise a larger portion of your equity now with this new price because we repriced your, your old options as well. Yeah, interesting. Good. This is really good tactical stuff, especially <laughs> given the market. Any other just general thoughts, tips, advice you would give founders kind of as we're you know, in week six of shelter in place and who knows yeah. what this economy is doing. What, what are you telling people? What I've been telling people and what we were doing as well, is like cut anything and everything you can. So we went pretty deep in, in terms of like reductions that we could take place. Now we did not do um, layoffs. Mm -hmm. We had to do some furloughs, especially in an operational business, right? Mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in, the, in the field team, because that's very tied directly to the volume that we're doing. We have had, uh, you know, since then we've actually been able to call people back because our volume is better than we had expected, which is awesome. I mean, like it was one of the hardest things to think about is like letting go or furloughing people who, um, uh, you know, making 
not that much money and really need a job right now. So it was, it was really terrible, but yeah. uh, I'm glad that we've been able to call people back as the business kind of got back into a better place. Um, but we did do some furloughs and we still have some furloughs in place right now, but we um, mostly uh, did a big salary cut. Um, so we basically did a flat salary cut for every salaried employee at the company. We have hourly people for whom you can't do that. You know, that's different. But for salaried employees, we, we went pretty steep there. Um, we actually publicly said it was 25%. Um, and so to me, that was a right move because um, we don't know how long this is going to last. And, yeah. and doing a layoff just didn't feel right at this time. And it also didn't feel necessary yet uh, because who knows, maybe we'll recover in two months and then, you know, we can get back to, to previous salary levels. Um, and so my view was like conserving as much cash as possible is a really, really critical in this environment. Getting as much of runway as possible is really, really critical. So things that we did, kind of the steps that we took added in about four months of runway to our mm. runway, mm-hmm. which I think was really important, right? And like, if I could add more, I would, because that's the most we could do. Um, and, and, and then try to get as much capital in as possible. So whether that's venture debt or whatnot, if you have access to it and you can do it, you should. Now, in our case, that's a little harder because we already have debt, so you can add debt to debt. But like, yeah. um, you know, we have a floor plan for buying cars, etc. But um, um, you know, if you can get debt, you should. You might not like the terms; it might be really expensive on the interest rate perspective. But it's just valuable, and you might even think, "I don't need it." Doesn't matter. Get the debt because you might need it, and so it's, yeah. just, it's just better to have it versus not. Um, and then, thirdly, you know, um, watch the market really carefully try to prove that you are a, you know, resistant to what's going on as much as possible. And when markets open up, um, go and raise. I mean, yeah. VCs are taking a lot of meetings right now. Most VCs are not making decisions right now. They might tell you that they are, but they're really not. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that the bar is really, really high, mm. like super high in terms of people investing. That just makes sense, right? Like people don't know what this environment is going to be. Um, and no one's feeling the pressure to, to, to go do a lot of deals. And I think it's really hard for people to um, invest in companies that, where they don't know the founders. And so, I'm, you know, for better or for worse, founders that are known quantity will have a better um, choice chance here versus founders that are not. So going back to my point, like process of discovery, right? This is where you might really benefit because somebody might have said to you and no in a series A, but they at least got to know your person, they got to know your team, et cetera. Uh, now you might be able to we'll go back to them and actually get a deal done over video because they don't have a need to get to know you again. They already met mm. you in person. Yeah. But it's really tough in the venture <laughs> business to do deals over video, right? Because like getting to know the person and kind of get on both sides, on the founder side and on the, on the VC side, it's really critical for you guys to know each other. And so um, it's, a, it's a really tough environment. It's going to open up, obviously, but like the next few months are going to be really tough. Um, I, I heard from one of my uh, VC investors was like, look, we are telling our companies to have a year's worth of runway, mm. um, which, you know, intrinsically is what felt right to me as well, which is kind of what we, we try to achieve. Um, and I think that's right. Like trying to have runway at least through Q1 of, uh, of next year. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I was on a, a Saster, uh, virtual summit yesterday and Mark Suster, who's at upfront ventures yeah. was saying like, yeah, 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 this is a great time to be, reaching out to VCs cause we're all stuck at home in our pajamas and, and hoodies just doing video calls. Like, you know, not that he was going to do a deal yeah. necessarily over video. No, but, I, I think yeah. it's a great time to reach out to VCs and they all want to see decks and they all want to talk to you probably because they have nothing yeah. to do. Although, you know, they have a lot to do at the same time because they're all doing, yeah. um, 
they're all doing a lot of um, uh, a lot of um, you know portfolio Triage. management, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, who can I help? Who can, and what do they need? So it is very busy time. But yes, they want to see new companies. I just think getting in a, a yes from a VC right now is really tough. Yeah, uh, I think getting a yes on anything. I mean, a BD deal right now is really tough, right? Like, we are talking to um, a few dealerships about like, do they come on on our marketplace? And like, everyone's like, have a massive need, but like. Can I think about that right now? Or do I think about the fact that I laid off 80% of my workforce? Like, right. it's just, what is the magnitude different, right? And so I think getting anything done right now is really tough. Uh, it's a, just a bad environment and, and there's nothing you can do about it. And, and it's going to be like this for a while. Yeah. Um, by the way, the other thing people should be doing right now is renegotiating their leases. Mm. Um, landlords might not be happy me saying this, but like yeah. the reality is you have a lot of leverage here to renegotiate leases and, and you should. Um, you know, in a in a good way don't do anything rash and crazy don't not pay your rent for april or whatever but go up there and have good conversations i mean i think uh the idea like don't pay rent i i don't think is smart thing it just creates a lot of um complexity with the, your landlord but the reality is is that there's a lot of opportunity to renegotiate leases and i think you should, everyone should yeah interesting well george i've kept you a long time already and this is really good stuff any just other tips things, pieces of advice you would give your younger self if you were doing this all over again? Obviously, don't underestimate the operational challenges, but what else? Anything well, else? no, I mean, I think that don't overvalue your business, right? Like mm. being overvalued is a bad thing. Uh, I always said, oh, don't maximize valuation, but even when you say that and do it, you still end up potentially being high. The reality is this is a binary. Startups are a binary business and it's completely irrational, right? Like being a founder is a totally irrational phenomenon. <laughs> um, and so, because it's so binary, whether you're on 30% or 20% or 10% or 5% of a successful outcome doesn't actually matter. Um, but, you know, so don't worry about dilution. Focus on getting the right team, getting the right investors, and getting the right amount of money uh, to, do, to do your job. And don't focus on, on, on dilution. Uh, yeah. It's kind of my, my view. And, and uh, you know, I've always believed that. I honestly believe that the next two years is going to be an amazing time to be a new founder of companies. We're going to see, not in the next six months, but like, Companies that are launched in Q1, Q2 of next year and then onward from that for the next like few quarters are going to be some of the best companies we talk about in the next 10 years mm -hmm. because recessions are when the great founders kind of come out of the woodwork mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and build great stuff. Um, and so I think we're going to see some really great companies born in this time period. Um, and, you know, seed money is going to open up first, then Series A money is going to open up, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So like, you kind of can match to that in really good timing in terms of being a founder. And so I think like this is the time to be a founder. Um, by the way, I like, think of all the opportunities this kind of situation is going to create, how many name brand businesses are going to fall apart in this environment, right? Because so they won't be able to be succeeding. So that's going to create opportunity as well. But I think it's a great time period to be a founder um, of a new company. Now, for those of us who are already in the thing, it's really tough. But like we're all dealing with prices. I don't know of a founder who's not dealing with prices. Even businesses that are doing great uh, still have a crisis because like they're not having so much usage. They're not used to that. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's like it's a, just a really tough time, and and the world's um, you know not, not going to be the same for for a long time period. I just um, that's kind of my my view on that. No, I, I I agree with you. You see some of the startups. I I made a list on LinkedIn of all the companies that were formed in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and it's mm -hmm. just astounding. You know lots of yep. mega decacorns so yep that's that's normally uh that's always the case so um i i think it's going to be a really interesting time period 
Very good. All right. If people want to learn more, it's simply shift.com. They can buy or sell a car there. Um, do, you, do you have any, you mentioned like the over 80,000 mile cars, any like classic cars or is it more new? No, 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 no classic cars. We try to limit us to like sub 12 years in age. Um, it's been, we are very much like, uh, you know, kind of your bread and butter car, right? Like we want to be able to serve a, uh, you know, family living out in Oakland, you know, buying their second car, the third car or what, whatnot, or up, yeah. up, you know, getting a bigger car because they have kids, et cetera. That's kind of our core business. Um, you know, we are not in the business of selling Uber luxury cars. There's a company called, we have luxury cars, but that's not like our focus. Um, there's a company called Vroom. Um, that is, you know, online sales and like literally like 90% of their inventory is, is one or two years old and, mm. you know, average sale price of $30,000. Our average sale price is $15,000. Mm. It kind of gives you a sense of like working in a very different type of a market. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, so I think um, um, it's, uh, it's just a different, different type of business. And uh, we, um, we want to do the, we think that's the most interesting space to be in. That's where the sure. demand is. Cool. All right, George of shift.com. Thank you so much. This is really interesting. Lots of good stuff and uh, stay safe, shelter in place and uh, catch you on the other side of this. <laughs> Likewise. I hope we open up soon here. I know it's, that's my, that's my hope. Yes. Cool. Thank you very much. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye.